I'll read our text, Isaiah 44, verse 24 through 45, verse 8, and ask for God's blessing on our time and go from there. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Father God, we thank you for the words that you have revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. We thank you for their trustworthiness and their power. They are the sword of your spirit to give life. We pray that they would indeed do that in our midst, that you would uh, break up stony ground, that you would plant seeds that, would, that you would cultivate to, to great fruitfulness in our lives of faith and hope and love. We pray that you'd give me faithful proclamation and wisdom, knowing how to declare these things, and that you'd give us all alertness and softness of heart. Please do wonderful things in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Life often feels chaotic and scary, as though it's spinning out of control. This applies to every scale of what we're concerned about. Uh, from maybe at various times, we could be thinking of the micro scale of our lives, my health, my closest relationships, my financial provision, 
Or we might be concerned about the medium scale. Maybe my family, my church, my friends, my my company that I work for. Or we could be thinking about the very largest scale, the, the geopolitical developments around the world or cultural trends in the West or in the United States. It's a normal human reaction to fear the unknown future in any of these ways. But this fear can lead us to make frantic attempts to predict or to control events that have yet to unfold. It's like we're being swept along by a raging river and we're just desperately craving and grabbing at something solid we can hold on to, anything to bring us stability and end this terrifying ride. And while this response is normal for mankind in a sin-plagued world, it's not the way that God wants his people to feel about history. He has far better things for us. And that's what today's scripture passage and today's sermon are about. We returned last week to our sporadic journey through Isaiah, and I mentioned the context that at this point in the book, God has promised Judah a dark future of exile because of their persistent sin and failure of his covenant. And then, after predicting the judgment at the hand of Babylon, the Lord pivots and follows by promising them restoration beyond the exile. And that's mainly what these chapters 40 through 66 are about. Now, this restoration has a more immediate historical horizon, which is what we'll focus on today. But it also points forward to the great work of redemption from sin that the Lord will work through his messianic servant, whom we'll later find out seven centuries later is Jesus. So there's, a, there's an immediate historical restoration in view, but it looks ahead to the greater restoration to come. But at the same time as promising future redemption, the Lord is doing something else. He's mounting a case to persuade Israel away from idols toward him. These two horizons of deliverance, the immediate and then the long term, they both will show that he alone is the sovereign Lord worthy of worship, worthy of all worship. And this brings us to our text where he begins explaining the historical deliverance that's coming in the near future. And we're going to look at a large chunk today. I just read it's 13 verses. It starts in chapter 44, verses 24 to 28. And in this section, this is all just a really loaded up way of the Lord telling Israel what he says in verse 24. I am the Lord, which it means I am the I am. And it's always good to remember when we see the Lord in caps or Yahweh, what that means is the I am. Recalling back to Exodus chapter 3 when he introduced himself to Moses this way. It means that he's the self-existent one. The only one whose being doesn't change, doesn't begin, doesn't end, and doesn't depend on anyone. In fact, all other things that have being constantly depend on him. So he's introducing himself in those first verses. And then moving into chapter 45 in verses 1 to 7, we have the Lord telling Israel what he will say to the Persian king Cyrus. But it's interesting, it's a rhetorical device. Israel is the primary audience here. He's telling them, here's what I say to Cyrus, but they're intentionally overhearing it. It's for them. And finally, in verse 8 of chapter 45, we have our epilogue that caps off the whole text. Church, this is what God has to say to us today. Your Redeemer is the sovereign Lord of history. Your Redeemer is the sovereign Lord of history. That's the main idea here. 
And to be convinced of this, we will look at 10 features, yes, 10, of his sovereign orchestration of history. 10 features of the Lord's sovereign orchestration of history. The first kind of comes up in several places, but we first see at the beginning of of verse 24, it moves towards salvation for his elect. It moves towards salvation for his elect. He says in verse 24, he identifies himself as the Lord, your Redeemer. We'll talk about chapter 45, verse 8 later, but he, there he talks too about salvation bearing fruit. And all throughout the way, we have these other little glimmers of what, he talk, what he's talking about by salvation. He is Israel's Redeemer and Savior. Now, based on the context that I just explained, it's no mystery that this whole text revolves around his plan to save. That's what he says in chapter 45, verse 4. He says, this is all for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. He's working all this, he tells Cyrus, for the sake of Israel. Now it is namely for their salvation. Of course, restoration from exile. We see this in verses 26 and 28, where he says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. And then in verse 28, he says of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. It's about rebuilding the ruins that God brought about in judgment for their sin. But as the text makes clear, the events that lead to Israel's redemption are not just what we might call religious events. They're not just isolated religious events that only affect religious things. They are very real world events. They are real in every sense of the word. They're weighty political matters. They affect people from a wide swath of humanity that have no conception of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is an important point about our worldview, biblical worldview, is that all of history revolves around this plan of redemption, the plan that ultimately Jesus Christ would accomplish to fulfill God's promises to Israel. Now, if you were to write a narrative of world history, let's say someone were to commission you to write the story of the world history, this is an overwhelming task, how would you frame the story? This is something that we may have never thought to identify, but a lot of us have an answer that we function with. What is the through line? What is the central story? What are the tracks that history runs on? Some might say it's the story of technological development. Some might say it's a story of the the ascendancy of civil and human rights. Some might say it's a story of human evolution that then leads to catastrophic environmental collapse. Everyone's got a master story about history. But the biblical Christian true answer to the question, what is history about, is this. It's God's redeeming plan in Jesus Christ. It's the fall of the world into sin and God's plan to restore in Christ. I just recently saw someone post online a a world map. But the thing is, it wasn't just a normal world map. It was based on what the map was trying to highlight. It was centered on the Northwest Pacific And uh, one thing that I've heard before is that Alaska, remote Alaska of all places, is actually a very important strategic location in global geopolitics and defense. And at the time that I heard that, I responded with puzzlement. I thought, that's kind of weird. Why is Alaska such a big deal? It's so out of the way. But seeing this map, showing the world from this perspective, suddenly Alaska looked very important. It looked very central. It sits right in between us 
and these great eastern powers of China and Russia. And you go, oh, I can see why Alaska is kind of important. The point is the choice of where to center the map makes a big difference on how we read it. And so it is with our view of history. The central issue, the one thing that's happening that explains all other events is the story of God redeeming a people from every nation of the earth through the atoning death and resurrection of his son. That's the main thing that's happening in the world and has been from the start. So Christians, those of us to whom God has revealed in his word some of his future purposes, our text this morning is training us to understand the world by asking this question, what is happening with God's redeeming plan right now? That is perhaps the most important question we can ask as we wrestle with understanding history and what's happening. What's happening with God's redeeming plan right now? We might hear of wars and rumors of war. It may bring us fear, it may not, but do we ask the question, what does this have to do with the progress of the gospel? That's the question to ask, isn't it? So the first feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it moves toward the redemption of his elect. The second feature is, moving on in verse 40, uh, chapter 44, verse 24, it is rooted in creation. Because God goes on and says, I form you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Here he continues to identify himself, this time as the creator. And there is an important kind of triangular connection between three concepts that the Lord keeps on hammering throughout Isaiah. The first one is monotheism. There's only one God. It's the Lord Yahweh. He's the only one. You heard that come up over and over in our text, especially in verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, there is no other. So first, monotheism. Second, his creation of all things from nothing. And thirdly, is his absolute sovereignty over heaven and earth. And all these three claims, you can just a moment of thought, you can see that they're all tied together. Because the Lord made all of heaven and earth, he alone is sovereign over all that happens there. There's nothing left to lie under the domain of any other gods or any other ultimate powers. History lies securely in his hands. And so as we consider the world, we might be quick to consider causation that that really comes from other creatures. What factors are in play here? What other powers are at work? And certainly, these are legitimate. Men and women and angels and devils and machines and nations, they all play their roles. But the Lord stands over them all. He stands over all powers, all forces, all influences, all intelligences. The one who created all things rules over all things. And so the second feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it is based on his identity as creator. The third is in verse 25. It thwarts the wisdom of the wise. The Lord continues to identify himself as the one who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. This verse considers pagan diviners and wise men, those in the ancient world who sought to tell fortunes and prognosticate about the future. And these people were everywhere. They certainly existed among Israel. You know, by this point, Israel was so given over to pagan worship. That's why they're going into exile. Isaiah 65.11 refers to those among Israel who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. 
But these arts seem to be a specialty among the Babylonians. And so this might be the implied attack here. The Babylonians, the one who will, who will conquer Judah, these wise Babylonians will not be able to see the future defeat that the Lord will send in the form of Cyrus. But whether we're talking about uh, wise men in Israel or in Babylon or wherever they are, at any rate, these folks, what they did is they tried to read the signs in the created realm in order to predict the future. Uh, they claimed to have inside knowledge about the activities of the gods or thus the inner workings of the universe that enabled them to see how the present signals pointed ahead into how the future was going to unfold. But God is promising that his way of orchestrating history will devastate those predictions and put their masters utterly to shame. History does not ultimately depend on cause and effect processes that are baked into the creation itself. Yes, those relationships exist, they have a role, but there is a divine intelligence standing over it all and guiding it according to his good pleasure. And because it's God alone who rules over history, it's only his promises on which we can lay our heads at night. No one else's predictions are a safe place to find refuge. It's only in his promises. And we have people like this in our culture. We have people who try to predict the future and forecast and position themselves as wise experts. They can read the signs and tell us what's coming. There are some people who are literally called futurists. This is like all they do is try to tell us where everything's going. This is their specialty. This kind of thing happens, uh, a lot of effort in this direction in the finance world. Can you imagine the money-making potential of predicting the future? We also have cultural commentators that position themselves as wise because they're able to read the signs and discern the present and what it promises about the future. But this morning, God is warning us against setting our hearts on any of these man-made predictions. Whether interest rates will go up or down, what polling results might indicate, or your prognosis, your diagnosis is... All these kinds of predictions. And sure, there can be some limited value in making, say, climate models to predict the temperature today. I think we all were glad to know it was going to be hot as blazes today. Not that it helps us, but it's good to know. Or how much water is going to melt in the, in the summer and, and flow into our reservoirs. There can be some value in your doctor guessing how long you have to live if you do get that terminal diagnosis. Humbly guessing is not the issue. What we're talking about is godless pride in man-made wisdom that doesn't take into account the Lord's sovereignty. It's a matter of where our trust is. Who do we trust to tell us what's happening in the future? So the third feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it thwarts the wisdom of the wise. The fourth feature is in uh, the, the beginning of verse 26. It fulfills his own promises. It fulfills his own promises. He says, he, again, he's identifying himself as the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So in contrast to these pagan fortune tellers, the Lord guarantees the fulfillment of his own words that are given through prophets like Isaiah who predict the future on his behalf. And not only will these words come true, but in so doing, they'll offer powerful proof of God's incomparable deity, because no one else can do this. And we have it right here in print. Now consider the timeline here. 
Isaiah wrote this prophecy around the year 700 B.C. And it wasn't until 160 years later, about 540 B.C., that Cyrus would take over Babylon and return the exiles. 160 years in the future, he's naming Cyrus. And this is not like the vague prediction of psychics whose words create such a haze that anyone who really wants to can find fulfillment in the events. You know what I mean? Just these hazy predictions. And if you're motivated enough, you can kind of connect the dots and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's happened. This is laser-like in its prediction. He names Cyrus. It is so precise and so long ahead of the event that it makes modern critical biblical scholars, that is unbelieving academics, very uncomfortable with letting things lie as they appear. So starting in the 19th century, they began hypothesizing workarounds. How is this? How does Isaiah say this? How can we explain, barring something like a supernatural explanation, like God actually speaking through Isaiah? We know that didn't happen. How could this have happened? And so they landed on, there's various versions of this, but some form of an explanation that the material here that names Cyrus was written much later after the fact. By a second author, they call second Isaiah or Deutero Isaiah. Say, oh, someone else came along and wrote this stuff about Cyrus after it happened. Now, there's zero manuscript evidence that the text came together in such a disjointed fashion over time. The only piece of evidence we have is the fact, this book, the fact that a prophet who claims to be writing about 700 BC names a man doing things 160 years in the future. But based on their godless, anti-supernatural assumptions, they just can't take this book on its face. But if you're familiar enough, if you've been with us, with Isaiah's context, and even what's going on in today's sermon, you can see that if naming Cyrus was just a parlor trick, then everything the prophet is arguing for falls flat on its face. It completely nullifies everything this text is saying. Because God's whole point here is that he can predict the future because he is the one who rules the future. So naming Cyrus and promising what he will do through Cyrus is supposed to be a jaw-dropping display of his sovereign supremacy over history. Now, some of us might have struggles with wondering if the Bible's true. How can we know the Bible's true? Some believers wrestle with this. Or maybe you don't believe and you're wondering about the claims of Christianity. How can I know the Bible is true? Well, here's our choice, friends. Either God has clearly predicted the future here, or this book is a complete lie. And there is absolutely no reason why we should open it and seek to find any value for our lives. Those are the two choices before us. Either it's the word of a history-shaping God, or it's the Wizard of Oz behind the machine in the Emerald City. Those are the only two choices before us. And as some believing scholars have pointed out, the final form of Isaiah... This book itself is the only evidence we have. And so a fair-minded assessment of the evidence points to the conclusion that the Lord of history has called his shot. Now, a called shot demonstrates complete mastery. Uh, One of the legendary moments of Babe Ruth's baseball career was in October 1st, 1932. It was Game 3 of the World Series at Wrigley Field in Chicago, and he called his shot against the Chicago Cubs. So he was at bat in the fifth inning, and he was being mocked and jeered by by Chicago players and fans. And he pointed his bat to the flagpole in center field. And the next pitch, he knocked it over the fence at center field, at the flagpole, right where he had pointed. 
And this is a legendary moment because as hard as it is to knock a major league pitch 440 feet over the wall, it is exponentially harder to do it at the predicted location at the predicted time. To see a man do that, everyone goes, wow, what a legend that he could do it in that way at that time. How much more impressive is the word of the Lord demonstrating his absolute mastery over history? by predicting his future deliverance and naming his future agent who will carry it out. Friend, if you're looking for proof of the utter reliability of the Bible, what more could God do to get your attention? We can and should believe his word entirely. So the fourth feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it fulfills his own promises. The fifth feature is that it rhymes with his works in the past. It rhymes with his works in the past. This takes us from 4427 through the beginning of chapter 45 verse 1. Who says to the sea, who says to the deep be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Who thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped. What I mean by saying that God's works rhyme is that they're patterned after each other in history, and it creates a sort of an echoing literary effect throughout this great story of redemption. So verse 27 describes his future work in terms of a, the past exodus. If you're wondering what's going on with the deeps and the rivers, what stood in the way of Israel's redemption when they left Egypt? What did the Lord have to do to get them through? He had to divide this Red Sea so that they could pass through safely. Exodus 14. And a generation later, they were on their way into the promised land. And what did he do? He performed a similar miracle by drying up the Jordan River and letting his people across. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 3. The deeps and the rivers did not pose an obstacle for the redeeming hand of the Lord. And so once again, figuratively speaking, he's saying, once again, neither the seas nor the rivers will stand in my people's way. In other words, there is a new exodus afoot. A new deliverance for God's people from captivity into their holy place with him. But then moving into the next two verses. So we have this backward look at the Exodus. And then moving into the next two verses. We have another way that God's saving acts follow patterns. But this one looks forward. Because the way that God introduces Cyrus is provocative. It kind of makes us think of the Davidic Messiah. It's like, whoa, whoa. You're describing Cyrus in some pretty exalted ways. He first calls him in verse 28, my shepherd. Now, shepherd was a pretty common metaphor for kings in the ancient Near East. But it certainly applies to David throughout the Bible uh, in the Old and New Testaments. And it looks forward to the promised Christ, this motif of the Christ as a shepherd. You may think of texts like John 10 where he says, I'm the good shepherd, etc. This is something that came up in the prophets. So when he calls this man my shepherd, we're like, whoa. <laughs> Remember he's a pagan king God? Is that a little, saying a little too much? But even more eyebrow raising is in verse 1 when the Lord calls Cyrus my anointed. This is the origin of our word Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek. Now there were other anointed figures in the Old Testament. They were servants. They were all within Israel. Designated by God and set apart for ministry. They were prophets and priests and kings. And of course when Jesus Christ the capital M Messiah comes along. We see that all these little anointed ones collectively anticipated the greater anointed one who was to come. 
But this is fascinating. God's people are stuck in captivity, and what will he do? He says, I will send my shepherd, my Messiah, a pagan king, to deliver them and bring them back. Do you remember how I said earlier that the return from exile that's coming in the near future is a kind of a foreshadowing of the greater redemption yet to come? And Isaiah structured this way. It uses this near historical deliverance uh, to kind of project forward into the great exodus to come. The redemption from sin that God is working among Israel and all the nations in Christ. Cyrus is a type of Christ. He's showing us a picture of what kind of agent the Lord will use for this new exodus. Now, Cyrus won't ultimately save anyone. He has a role in restoring God's people to the land. He has a role in relaying the foundation of the temple and allowing this nation to continue so that it could produce the Christ that God had promised. But if, as I said earlier, the whole story of the world is a story of redemption, then it's vital for all of us to know who the Redeemer is. And ultimately, it's not Cyrus. It's ultimately knowing the great Redeemer that we join the plan of redemption. Now, we've all been cast out from God's presence over our sin. In one sense, we're all exiles, captive by nature and sin. Ephesians 2, 1-3 tells us, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's talking to Christians about how we used to be, and in so doing, he's describing the natural state of all mankind, a captive to sin, a captive to Satan's ways, like all the rest of the world. But God has sent Christ the Redeemer who saves by his blood, all who believe. And we heard about this from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Rescue from sin. If you don't know Christ Jesus this morning, it is only faith in him that can make you a participant in God's saving plan. It's only faith in Jesus Christ that makes us a part of this saving work of God. Place your trust in him today and let God restore the ruins of your sin with forgiveness and eternal life in his presence. So the fifth feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it rhymes with his works in the past. The sixth is, moving into chapter 45, verses 1 to 3, it guides the movements of nations. It guides the movements of nations. So he talks about Cyrus, he says, whose right hand I have grasped to do what? To subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Here's what he says to Cyrus then. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. So he promises Cyrus that he'll go before him and smooth his way of conquest. He says, I'll open doors for you. I'll knock the doors down. And you'll have your way to get into those places you want to conquer. And I'll give you access to all the treasures that your enemies are hiding. Now we learn from history that Cyrus's Persians were actually able to enter Babylon and overtake the city without even a battle. Overnight. Providence indeed cleared his path. You can see this picture of, I'm going to open doors before you. He certainly did that. Cyrus's victory over Babylon demonstrates that God's plan encompasses 
even the grandest events of the world, even with the most powerful actors on the world stage. And it's not only those actors who know him and are seeking to do his will. God strongly emphasizes in verses 4 and 5 to Cyrus, you don't know me. I named you, but you don't know me. And yet the Lord has still taken this king by the hand and led him to carry out his own will. Even evil leaders who don't seek the Lord are carrying out his eternal purpose, even despite themselves. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we pray this way for governing authorities during our pastoral prayers, that we would love to see God bring these individuals to faith in Christ and to salvation. But either way, even if he won't, we do pray, nonetheless, that he'll guide their hearts and their hands toward contributing to the ends that he wants to bring about, whether or not they fear him, whether or not they acknowledge the lordship of Christ over them. That even maybe despite their intentions, they would be clearing the way for what he wants to do. Remember, God's plan for all history centers and revolves around this new exodus that he's carrying out in Christ. This salvation that he's working for all the nations through faith in his name. And if that is the eye of the hurricane, it wraps all other events of history into its orbit. All other movements and machinations of men and kingdoms. It's all revolving around this one thing God's doing. Do you read the news this way? Some of us might have an easier time believing that God is sovereign over the small-scale events in my life, but not those big developments in history, the big scary stuff I might read about in the news. Or maybe some of us are the opposite. We can believe that God's in control of all that big stuff, but trusting his providence over the little details of our lives, maybe that's harder for us. But either way, in fact, the Lord maintains sovereign control over it all, from the very largest scale to the very smallest. From the things that obviously pertain to the spread of the gospel to the things that seem totally unrelated. He's in charge of all of it. So the sixth feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it guides the movements of the nations. The seventh is continuing in verse 3. It puts rulers in their place. This is what he says to Cyrus after talking about the success of Granum. He says, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. So God's purpose, both in predicting to Cyrus that he would give him victory and then in doing it, is that Cyrus would see whose hand equipped him. He should not interpret his success as a confirmation of his own greatness or power or wisdom. Neither should he credit his pagan gods. He should know that it was the great I Am, the Lord of Israel and the Lord of heaven and earth, who empowered him and granted him such resounding success. Now, in the event, Cyrus would eventually recognize, in one sense, he would recognize that it was Yahweh who gave him victory. And you can read about this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says this in the narrative when he's sending the exiles back to rebuild their temple. He says, Yahweh has given me success, etc. Yet, sadly, history seems to bear out the fact that he, he fell short of true belief in the Lord as the only God. Archaeology has uncovered a cylinder that's inscribed with kind of Cyrus's propaganda about his victories in which he credits a pagan god for helping him. Nonetheless, the text is clear that the Lord's sovereignty is meant to put human rulers in their place. And in the meantime, as we read, it's meant to warn us lest we find ourselves trusting in powerful leaders and nations to make our future 
secure. He's putting rulers in their place. Is it your favorite political candidate who makes you feel like everything will be okay? Is it a strong economy? Is it a strong, formidable defense apparatus that our government has maintained? Put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 146 verse 3. We can be grateful for righteous leaders. We can be grateful for a healthy economy or for defense, things like that. They're, they have their role. Again, it's not where we trust. We don't put our trust in any flesh and blood, anything but the Lord. We rest in God's loving control over every detail of our lives. And knowing him keeps flesh and blood in their place. So do you know him? Are you resting in him? The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, says Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. So the seventh feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it puts rulers in their place. Eighth, in verses 5 and 6, it shows the world his supremacy. It shows the world his supremacy. We're almost done. You heard that? Eight out of ten. We're getting there. The progress bar is advancing. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God's not done yet. It's not just for Israel's salvation, verse 4. It's not just for Cyrus to know him, verse 3. The intended effect radiates outward like a a ripple that a pebble has left in a pond. And now we're talking about how the prediction fulfilling rescue is supposed to attract the attention and the praise and the trust of all the nations. How is this fulfilled? How does this work? Well, consider yourselves, brothers and sisters. Consider us. It's being fulfilled right now. Here we are, Gentiles, like us, reading about what happened centuries later and responding with faith in the Lord. That's how it's supposed to work. After all, this prediction made it into the Bible, God's permanent body of inspired and preserved revelation for his church. And indeed, all the nations are reading about this and praising God because it invokes his praise and it invokes from us our trust for every word that he's spoken out of his mouth. If he can be trusted to do this like he said, he can be trusted in anything he says to us. And the story is not over. History is still moving toward redemption. Jesus Christ came in time conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, to accomplish redemption by his sacrifice for sinners on the cross. And he's ascended into heaven and he's poured out from there his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now in the world applying the redemption that Christ has won through the preaching of the gospel to the nations and giving life. And in this time now, we await the final consummation of Christ's redeeming work. But meanwhile, it's, it's time, it's the era to make his, our supreme and sovereign God known to the nations through the saving message of Jesus, through the word of the cross that we read about from Paul. And that's what world mission is about. It's about all the nations fulfilling verses 5 and 6, that people may know from the east to the west, all across the world, that there's none other but Yahweh. And he saves through his son, Jesus Christ. So the eighth feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it shows the world his supremacy. Ninth is that it's the final reason for all that happens. This is in verse 7. It is the final reason for all that happens. 
I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, this is the main theological statement of the whole text. All that happens, whether good or bad, comes finally from the hand of God. Now, the Lord is not claiming to do evil as a responsible moral agent because we know God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He is holy, 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 unstained and pure of any sin. Rather, what he's claiming is that he's the one who orchestrates and ordains all, even calamitous and evil actions carried out by responsible agents. Now, this claim is a shot across the bow of polytheism because it's not a multitude of gods who determine events. It's the I am working alone, performing his eternal will. It also undermines any sense of cosmic dualism, an idea that there are maybe two rival gods who determine events. There's a good light God and there's a dark evil God and they're warring. Uh, even all creation, there are beliefs that in the ancient world that all of creation is kind of a product of this war between these two contrasting gods vying for supremacy and power. No. This verse tells us, this whole text, the whole Bible tells us, there is one God, unrivaled and free in all that he does. And all of history is shaped in his hand. Whether light or darkness, whether calamity or peace. That's what well-being, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace and flourishing and everything being as it ought to be. It all comes from his hand. Friends, do we fear the future because we don't know how it'll work out? Do we fear the future because we don't know whether our good expectations will fail or what disasters may surprise us that we never accounted for? This morning, the Lord of heaven and earth is gently correcting these fears in our hearts, saying, you have no reason to fear. I form light and create darkness. And then does that fear ever metastasize? Not only that we're afraid, but then we take sinful measures and frantic attempts to seize control of events. We end up sinning because we're afraid of things we can't control. Think of Abraham lying about Sarah, his wife. The Lord is calling us away from those restless hearted sins to find rest for our souls in his comprehensive sovereignty. He does it all. He says, I am the Lord who does all these things. So the ninth feature of God's sovereign orchestration of history is that it is the final reason for all that happens. Tenth and finally... It displays his good and righteous character. This is in verse 8. It displays his good and righteous character. It says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. This caps off the whole section. You can hear in that last line, I, the Lord, have created it. You can hear echoes of what came before in verse 7. But there's this metaphor he uses about rain, rain that falls on the earth and causes a crop to sprout up. There's a cause and effect relationship going on here with this metaphor. Now, the exact value of this metaphor, what God's referring to, is a little bit difficult to pin down. It's kind of, there's some mixing there. Righteousness seems to be the rain, and then later on, it's, it's maybe the crop that sprouts up along with salvation. But in the broader context, the overall message seems to be clear enough that God's righteous ways lead to a harvest of good, a harvest of salvation. And it is important that we end here. Because imagine if we left off the discussion at verse 7. 
I form light, I create darkness, I do all these things. The end. One might be excused for coming away thinking that God is indifferent regarding evil and suffering. One might think, based on verse 7, there's a lot of symmetry there between light and darkness. God brings about all of it. So one might wonder, does God care about evil? Does evil bother God? Are both sides equally desirable to him? And the answer is no, not at all. God rules everything by his righteous and bountiful character. His ways incline not toward doom and destruction, but toward salvation and blessing. And yet there is complexity and mystery to his ways. He's a master artist who sometimes uses dark colors to add contrast to his composition that overall explodes with light and color. Calamity is in his palette, but it's not his main purpose. Salvation and blessing are. Now, some of us might be totally fine with verse 8, but struggle with verse 7. You know that God is loving and good. You know that he delights to save and to bless. And so maybe you struggle with fathoming. How could he orchestrate that evil events would occur? Others of us might be the opposite. We love this absolute sovereignty of God. We're clear on verse 7. Yes, over all that happens, light and dark. But then we may be somewhat less convinced that all his ways toward me and Christ are for my good. All his ways for me are good and not ruin. Which of these is more of a struggle for you? Now, of course, I don't mean to set them in opposition. We need both sides in equal measure. We have a God who works all things, all things. And we have a God who works all things for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things for the good of our salvation and our conformity to his son. Church, your Redeemer is the sovereign Lord of history. Nothing happens apart from his will. His comprehensive orchestration of history centers on his eternal plan to redeem his elect in Christ. And it extends out to encompass every action by every ruler throughout time on the highest levels of the world's stage. And yet his sovereign control also extends down to the smallest scale detail in our lives. The future is a scary place. From a human perspective, you may feel like you're free-falling as we plummet toward the future, subjected to forces that are far beyond your control, with no way of hitting the brakes or controlling what happens. And God does not promise his people a life free from pain or loss or uncertainty. But the greater Cyrus has come to redeem and shepherd the Lord's people to a greater Zion. And a new exodus is leading to the blissful shores of a new Canaan. And because God is the sovereign author of history, there is no power in heaven or on earth that will stand in his way. Let's pray. Our God, we trust you. We thank you for how you've proven yourself trustworthy throughout history. We thank you for the ways that you have kept your words, your precious, reliable, true words. And we thank you for the ways that you have sent redemption in Jesus Christ for all the nations, all who would believe. We pray that you give us eyes to see your goodness and sovereignty in all things. And for the things that we can't connect the dots, we can't see how does this thing that's happening fit with the plan? How does it fit with your goodness? Even if we can't trace out how it fits, help us to rely on your character, your good, sovereign, gracious character. May we be a people who 
are secure in your sovereign grace. And may, we be a, may everyone here who has heard these words be secure in your saving work in Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation. We pray all this in his name. Amen.